0: hello everyone and welcome to our 100th episode of the rouge rugby podcast thank you for joining us this is a big occasion and we have a big guest joining us no it's not Derek Brissett. he's always with us uh the big guest we have today is former arrows and canada player jamie mckenzie jamie thank you for joining us
1: thanks for having me guys
0: okay we're um privilege to have you i know uh, derek and i have been talking about this for a couple of weeks thank you again for being on the show um we're just going to get straight into the hard-hitting questions you know the big topic that concerning you um how was the trip to portugal
1: <laughs> uh, portugal was great i uh, managed to sneak away with uh with uh, dan moore and uh, ben lesage uh we uh, we all lived together while we were playing for the Arrows, uh, and we're all kind of going our separate ways now. Uh, ben obviously heading to L.A. Dan just bought a, a new place in Toronto, and I'm uh, moving out uh, kind of to the Burbs for a bit. Um, so we decided to do one little last trip together, and uh, it made sense with Ben playing in, in Europe, uh, with Canada, that we'd pick somewhere over there. So we did a little bit of surfing, a little bit of hanging out in Portugal, and uh, it was uh, a good break and kind of a good send-off for each other.
2: How much of the trip was paid for by Ben's L.A. signing bonus?
1: <laughs> I, I think the trip was pretty much free for me and Dan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, All
1: right. Well, at least now we know why he went to L.A. anyways. <laughs> no, no. Um, I wish that was the case. I tried to get Ben to hire me as an assistant so he could at least expense it, but he wasn't, wasn't into that.
0: <laughs> What's the point of having friends in these places if they can't help you out?
1: yeah Yeah, well uh it it actually works out that his bye week is the the week of coachella so it's it's already got its perks yeah what what
0: a what a coincidence what a (laughs) fantastic coincidence exactly all right we're talking about the present but we're gonna uh just take a step into the past so we ask these questions to anyone who comes on the show and um so this is a question about like your origins in rugby and getting started so um, because
1: everyone has a different journey, what got you started in rugby? Uh, basically, in the simplest form, it was my my brother. Um, I'm two years younger than him. Uh, he kind of always led the way with, uh, I basically just followed uh, everything he did when I was younger. Um, started with hockey, and then he was playing rugby. And I guess my parents probably just didn't want to do extra, extra drives, so they sent us both to rugby practice and... Uh, that's kind of how I got into it. And, and he kind of grew into the sport and I kind of followed his footsteps. Um, so yeah, I'd have to put it up to my, my brother there for that one.
2: I I was going to say like, our next question is usually like, who is like an influential figure to helping you develop as uh, throughout your rugby career. But sounds like the answer to this question might be your brother, but
1: yeah, honestly, he was uh he's always been super driven and he he was in love with rugby from the start. I was more of a hockey player and um when that kind of didn't work out the way I wanted it to, I was kind of playing some rugby and stuff too and um kind of started enjoying it more because I was getting to play with him. Me and him actually played uh uh together in grade 10 when he was in grade twelve. Um But yeah, he was definitely a big factor in me falling in love with the game and and pursuing it more at a high level. Uh, And then obviously there's a few coaches that really kind of uh, helped me along the way um, that really kind of showed me what the game's all about and the culture of it all. And a couple names that that jump out is uh, my high school coach, Don Stewart. He was a really inspirational guy to play for and uh, and then there's a ton of Ontario coaches that um, really helped to push me to pursue rugby further. Um, Paul Connolly. I don't know if you guys know him, but he's figurehead in Ontario rugby. He was awesome. And uh, and there's um, a few guys, Jim Delaney as well. He used to do some Canada stuff. I haven't mean, talked to him in a while actually though, but yeah, uh, a lot of the coaches, but I'd, I'd really say my brother was the one that pushed me into everything and, and uh, helped encourage me and like I said he was always super passionate and I I just uh, followed in his footsteps.
2: So I guess the ultimate follow-up question then I, for that is just how cool was it to like you guys are the first set of brothers to play to start for Canada at a World Cup so like just like how cool is that moment for you and obviously now that you know you're retiring from uh, from pro rugby so like is that is that like I guess one of the highlights of the career that you kind of look back on or like how cool was that moment for you guys?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of took some time to reflect on my whole career. Once I uh, decided to make the actual decision to retire officially, I know I've kind of semi-retired here and there throughout my career, but yeah, it definitely took some time to look at all the, I guess you'd say highlights of it. Um, And one of those, I think, top of the list is, is starting that game against Italy with my brother in front of my family uh, at the World Cup in England. Um, and then another one right up there, too, is getting to play pro with him in, in London. So a couple cool things that not a lot of people get to do with, uh, with one of their family members.
0: So we're talking about playing, but I guess that whether you're a pro player or whether you've uh, retired or if you're like me, you've never Um, even been paid to play rugby. Um, We're all fans of rugby as a sport of itself. And is there someone that every time they've stepped on the pitch or still step on the pitch, you just love to
1: watch them play? Honestly, not at like the international level. I feel like there's always so many new, exciting players coming through. Uh, DuPont for me, especially right now, is uh, that guy lights it up every single time he goes out there and it's so exciting. But just having more of I guess, a Canadian influence is just watching the Canadian guys play now that I've stepped away from uh, international duties for, for a couple of years here and seeing the new talent come through. I always find it super exciting to watch Canada games. Uh, I know the results haven't been the best lately, but just to see kind of who's, who's next and who could be the next big name in Canadian rugby, I always find really exciting. Um, but looking back, a uh, couple guys that I always loved watching play for Canada or playing with them, um, there's a few names that stick out. But Taylor Paris was always lightning on the field. Jeff Hassler, he could turn something uh, and nothing into something. And um, Connor Trainer, who's one of my good friends, and uh, DTH Vandermeer, those guys were all wicked to play. I think Canada's had some exceptional backs. Uh, I feel like my brother would be a little bit mad if I didn't say him as well. He scored some <laughs> some, some pretty good tries at World Cups and stuff. So he was always cool to watch as well.
2: Uh, you, you don't have to suck up to him during <laughs> the duration of this podcast, but that's not the, I'm not going to tell you how to answer the questions.
1: He's uh, still bigger than me, so I, I got to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so obviously I'll kind of go with something. One of the things I guess for myself that I'm not kind of, I guess, always slightly jealous of professional athletes is because I have never left the continent of North America, never been on a plane that had to fly over like any body of water, except maybe like Lake Ontario or something. (laughs) What like traveling, playing rugby, you played, you played in England, some pro there, you played for the Canadian national team. So you've traveled the world going to that. You were at three world cups. Um, yeah. And you obviously too, you p- traveled around playing uh, with the Toronto Arrows and playing in North America as well. So what is the number one, like rugby tour road city that you have been to anywhere in the world? Uh,
1: that's a tough one. Cause I've had so many different experiences from like world cups to just like November games and then to MLR games. So I don't know. Um, there's a few like stories and, uh, <laughs> Nothing I should probably repeat on a podcast, but... No, that's um, see, that's, everyone <laughs> says that. That
2: is exactly what podcasts are for.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, uh, actually, just kind of thinking about being in Portugal, Lisbon is one of my favorite cities to play in. We had some uh, awesome games there where we absolutely put some points up on the board, had some big wins, and we celebrated after. That's a really, really fun city. Um, in the States, uh, Austin's a great, great city. Um honestly a lot of those american cities are just fun anywhere you go and when you're traveling with all the boys and stuff it's hard to have a bad time anywhere i remember we were uh in romania in bucharest and um actually it was uh, probably one of the first few times i met ben lesage he was there for like under 20s or something like that while the men's team was also touring and uh i can't remember if we'd like lost a close game or we'd won but uh it was the final stop of the tour so we ended up having a few few pints after the game and these poor young kids are are at our dinner with us and just seeing us, uh, crush a few beers and stuff. I remember Ben telling me about it. He's like, Oh my God, what are these guys up to? Um, but no, honestly, uh, it's, it's hard to nail down one spot. Um, like Tokyo was also insanely cool. I, we got to explore after the world cup when we were uh, off duty there. So that was really fun. Um, yeah, I, I can't pick one because there's too many too many good stories. Yeah,
2: that's 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 fair enough. I'm just happy to know that the immense uh, team takes such great care in grooming the youth of uh, the uh, the under twenty team. Well, while, while they you are got, on the road, though, so that is good. To, that is good to know.
1: Exactly, You've got to take care of them so they know. what Yeah, to do exactly. They got to show,
2: show the finer details of what it takes to exactly. be a professional rugby
1: player. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, speaking of traveling overseas, uh, twenty ten was a big year in europe for you um starting off with um that you got signed by escher rfc uh, playing between 2010 and 2012. now we've heard about like the issues that canadians have getting mlr contracts for other teams in the same continent with mlr Mm. what was the process of getting signed for escher and what were the complications now i you were also playing with your brother at the same time so obviously having someone else go through this experience as well with the same last name <laughs> help but uh, were there any um complications or any culture shocks when you're in england
1: not really um my whole like i was actually born in scotland uh, my whole family is english um and my brother had already been playing there we both got our uh, our uk passports as well um so how it actually came about is that i was playing for canada on that november tour where i think i i got my first cap against uh, belgium and i went back to university after that tour and he called me about a week later he's like oh our scrum half just tore like everything in his knee you want to come over on uh, just like a trial and play a couple of games and see what happens. And I literally just dropped all my classes. I knew the world cup was coming up and if I wanted to make it, that was my best shot to, uh, to play at the highest level that was available to me at that time. And that was in the championship, um, in London. Uh, so yeah, I don't think, I don't know if my parents were too happy at the time, but kind of worked out cause yeah, I dropped all my classes, hopped on a flight, played one, one trial game and then they signed me. So that's how that all worked out, but no, not really much of the culture shock. Like I said, I had a bunch of family over there and having my brother to show me the ropes was definitely really handy as well.
2: How many teams have you and Phil played on together over the course of, I guess, both of your careers?
1: Uh, including high school. So it would have been high school, um, Oakville Crusaders, um, UVic together, uh, Esher uh the national team and then probably actually we did like a canada under 21 uh like little mini tour together so there's got to be like upwards of 5 or 6 um but it's more the 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 time that actually stands out to me as funny story is when we actually played against each other for I I was still playing for Oakville and he'd play uh switched over to the Balmy Beach club and I was starting at 10 he was starting at 12 and in the game he Intercepted one of my uh, passes at at the halfway line, and he's running down the field as I'm chasing him. And he turns around, like holds the ball out on a platter, (laughs) just just taunting me, and walks in in under the post. And that's probably the the one time we've ever really played against each other, and that's what happened. And I don't think I'll be able to forget that. Who won that game, though? Honestly, no idea. That's all I remember from it. Okay, so so (laughs) one won. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So you yeah, turn that around
2: on him. It was, actually, yeah. it was, yeah, it was a it was
0: consolation sad. try. Yeah. You, it was, you was intentionally, you felt bad for him. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That was,
1: that was the only try they scored. Must have been in like the yeah. 79th minute when we were beating them 60 nothing. So, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: that's exactly what the final score was 60 to five. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, yeah, so yeah. Phil's puppy dog
2: eyes, and we're like, oh, right. uh, I gotta give him one, or yeah, else mom
1: and them, yeah, be
2: exactly. Be your be, your mom yeah. would have been upset, and then yeah, you couldn't let that happen, right?
1: Um,
2: that's that's actually a hilarious story though. Did did you like how I was gonna say like how competitive like were you guys like growing up then? Like, does that uh, is that is that like a typical like? I guess there's no taunting penalties in rugby. You don't really see it too often.
1: Yeah, um, I wouldn't say with each. We were never in situations really where we had to be like hyper competitive with each other um, because of the age gap. Like, we we're always playing for different teams. but, like or with each other. Um, so there's nothing really. Uh, with each other in terms of like being uh, competitive against uh, one another. So I guess we were lucky in that sense. It was more just being competitive in general and kind of trying to push the other guy to, to be a little better and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So kind of jumping back to uh, rugby Canada, playing for the national team, what do you remember about your first cap and, you know, the first time that you, Kind of put on that jersey, and how did that game go?
1: Oh man, that's uh it's so long ago. It's kind of hard <laughs> to remember. Uh, it's making me feel really old here. Um, I remember the. I was gonna say, don't specific- say that
2: because I don't think I'm that much younger than you either. So. <laughs> uh,
1: the specifics that I like really remember just being like a, a really cool stadium to play at. I remember it being like a very small, kind of intimate stadium where like. The, the stands were like a f- couple feet away from the actual sideline and it was packed place made like, I say packed, it was like probably five, six th- seven thousand but in such a small venue, it feels like 10 or 20. Um, and yeah, I just remember like obviously I had the nerves um, my first men's tour. Um, and I just remember how quickly it went by. Uh, I don't remember how much game time I got, but I'm, pretty much every game you play it feels like it goes by instantly um which is always kind of part of the rush is you want to get to the next game and and get that same feeling again but those are like the big things and basically just one thing that stands out is like standing up there for the first time and getting to sing the anthem I know it's a little cliche but it's it's such a cool feeling with your some of your best buddies and your brothers out there and uh, you're literally going to battle with another team. So it's kind of hard to really put into words how it all feels uh, at that time. And you don't know if it's going to be just your first or your last. So try try to soak it in, try to soak it up as much as possible, really. So
0: you've been selected to play for Canada across three different World Cups. Uh 2011 in New Zealand, uh, 2015 in England and 2019 in Japan. Um, what were some of your best experiences from each of those
1: World Cups? Oh, um, all three were, were so different. I would think I was like 21 or 22 at the time of the first one. And I'd kind of gone into that um, with the coaches telling me that it was more of a, a chance for me to like learn and grow as a player. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily uh, going to see the field a whole lot. and. Uh, I kind of just took that in stride and tried to soak up everything I could um, rather than be upset about now playing, just try to make the most of it and, and learn anything I could because the guys on that team were, were phenomenal. And that was a wicked one to be a part of. You got the likes of Cudmore, Riot, Pat Riordan, um, uh, Nanyak Dalla, Kleberger, Jason Clare, like Chauncey O'Toole. The, those guys were were tough as nails and being part of a group like that was, was insane. And then being at the, basically the home of rugby and in terms of the cultural sense, like it's hard to beat that. And then, uh, I feel like England was different in the sense that I actually had an opportunity to kind of be a starter and compete for a spot and playing in in the actual home of, of rugby (laughs) uh, in front of crowds that were like 30,000 people, 40,000, whatever it was like. Uh, that was a whole different experience and getting the start against Italy and almost taking that scalp was, was pretty spectacular. I think we just missed out on one bad forward pass call, which I don't think was actually forward. (laughs) And then, and then Japan was a whole nother experience. Just, uh, being in a place like that, we were treated so well, and it's such a beautiful country and the people there are so amazing. Um, it was a, like a truly amazing cultural experience in general uh again disappointing results but uh it's, it's everyone's so different and they're all so unique that i'm so so lucky that i got to experience three different ones and three completely different locations with uh basically like yeah it's, it's hard hard to pick out anything that really uh like from any individual one uh but just being part of all three was was phenomenal
2: yep so Obviously, you know, dur- during your kind of your time with Rugby Canada, there's been uh, there was some ups, there were some downs. Uh, now, un- unfortunately, as you you kind of alluded to earlier, when you're talking about how like excited you are to see some of like the younger players um, coming up through the ranks and like what the future of Rugby Canada w- w- is. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, with the loss to Chile, Rugby Canada will not be at the World Cup for the first time in um, the World Cup's history. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's like, you can kind of see it if you go online, um, there's a lot of like, I guess, frustrated, uh, rugby Canada fans kind of going out there, but I also kind of like, in kind of listening to some of the podcasts that we've kind of recorded and kind of going back and looking at some of the things that that are being said online, I I think at certain points, we've all been kind of guilty of like just getting like the pitchforks and torches out and kind of yelling and screaming and, uh, But what I'm kind of more interested in is like, I guess, the uh, like solutions and stuff like helpful, like helpful ideas and like, or I guess, constructive criticism and things like that. So you have recently retired um, from playing pro rugby. Um, So I know I know you have a job. You just said before the podcast, you were coming home from work, um, building some great houses, but I'm going to give you a different job. I'm going to put you in charge of Rugby Canada right now
1: oh yeah it's a big (laughs) job it's a big job i I don't know if that's one that many people want right now to be honest but no (laughs) um uh, well i think there's a lot of good things in the works um in terms of the mlr but and everybody expects like results right away um professional rugby has been in the UK and, and abroad for a while now, and they've got their pathways and, and people coming up and it's actually an opportunity where you can make some money if you don't play uh, one of the big sports in whatever country it is. And I think that is a big starting point. It's just being patient with taking the time to see it develop. Um, one thing I would like to see in terms of growing the sport, especially in the States uh, and, and helping North America, Uh, in general would be uh, scholarships in the States. I think that would be absolutely massive. Um, If you can start kind of converting some players. uh, So I'm I'm speaking more so specifically the States right now, but if you can convert some some players earlier on that guys that might not get those football scholarships, but they actually have an opportunity to still go to college and you can build up those programs and, and get them into the sport earlier. I think that would be huge uh, same. I know there is is some kind of some scholarships and stuff in, in Canadian uh, universities, but uh, I guess Canadian university just isn't the same as the States in general. But um, the fact that MLR is a pathway where kids can see themselves making a living. Um, I think that's huge. And that's going to take time for younger players to get into the sport and and realize there's an opportunity there if they don't make the uh, say OHL or NHL or whatever it is, like, that's going to be a big part of it. Uh, again, being patient with that and developing um, relationship. Like I'd love to see at least two more um, MLR teams, uh, one on the West coast and one in on the prairies or something like that. And they're able to develop relationships with local clubs. Um, I know the arrows are doing a good job of building up an academy, and it's just such a big country that it's tough, and and they're working on having kind of different little academies, uh, kind of all over Ontario, and then bringing them together in bigger groups, um, and just yeah, developing those relationships with with kids at a younger level, uh, younger age to see them come through a whole like academy program. That's I think that's a strength of England is you're getting into an academy system when you're 14, you're being around that professional environment. Uh, a lot of kids like leave university and they might get a shot to play for Canada, but they don't know what it's like to be an actual professional at the sport. Right. And you're still you're going straight into international rugby.
2: So I guess obviously at major league rug to kind of build off of that. I just, obviously like major league rugby, is like pretty new all things considered right we've only yeah you know one of the even like as young as the league is one of the seasons got completely wiped out too by a global pandemic right so Mm -hmm. um i guess it's like when you started playing or whatever it's like do you did you find like maybe like i don't necessarily want to say like before you kind of realized that maybe you had the talent and the ability to get to like the national team level but it's like when you first started playing like were was there like how was the pathway did you feel like there was a clear pathway or were you kind of like there's no way like I can really like make a living playing this sport or like how how, I guess what were your kind of thoughts on like building towards the goal of becoming a uh, pro rugby player at that point in time
1: literally I didn't make it as a hockey player and I was playing for Ontario and I was like this is cool i get to go on like tour to england and stuff and then yeah. uh i got i made the under 17 candidate team i was like oh like this is sweet like you get to travel and it's fun um and that's literally how i got into it i wish i wish i was growing up now and the mlr was a thing and you could say like okay uh, i'm gonna try to get into this academy and then i'm gonna try to go to university and then get drafted like that would be phenomenal like i'm so jealous of the guys that are coming through now and um i remember we used to get paid like 250 bucks to play na4 and that was that was it but you were stoked that you got a, a bit yeah. of beer money for a weekend and um you were never doing it for for anything like that you're just doing it to play uh represent your country and that was the pinnacle and, and anything else that came was a bonus
2: like how i guess obviously too because it's like you've I guess I think part of that is kind of like, I think the biggest, one of the big benefits of like MLR is just being able to just grow the profile of the sport in North America. Yeah. Obviously you can see like um arrows games are on TSN and like, you know, they have, there's like the championship got like nationally broadcast uh, south of the border. Mm-hmm. Um It's like, so obviously like, I mean, you've done like a little bit of like TV and stuff for <laughs> the arrows too, which we'll get into a little bit more later, <laughs> but like what, what, i guess i guess my question is is there anything that you see that like you would like to see like the mlr do as far as like i guess maybe like some like marketing and uh like kind of things like that to help grow the game kind of just growing like that i guess visibility of the game of rugby in general
1: yeah i i think they've already made huge progress uh going back to the days of pro rugby and i I remember my brother played in that and watching one of those streams was painful like they're scrambling last minute to find somebody that would stream it or broadcast it or whatever it was so the actual production value uh that we see now has grown like crazy um more of that uh you have to like really dig into that north american culture of like Kind of bright lights and, and all that kind of stuff and production factor and all, all that and i think LA's done a good job of that like getting steve aoki out for the finals and <laughs> uh doing like crazy crazy things and i know it costs a lot of money but uh hopefully it's worth the investment now down the road right yeah i've i've compared the growth
0: of like mlr should be similar to formula one's growth over the past five years now obviously very different sports very different financial situations they're in but this is a they're both very european sports Mm -hmm. and it was proven this year that with things because a lot of people would say that oh yeah drive to survive on netflix that's what's brought in a lot of new fans but a lot of the work that's been done has been done at uh, race days or race weekends, I think it's the best term to use. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things they've said is that they've turned these uh, weekends into events Mm -hmm. because American um, sports fans expect big events for everything. And um, credit where it's due, I think like Austin have done this very well. Um, Obviously, COVID has thrown a spanner in the works for Mm -hmm. every team to do it, but you know, we have, like, theme days. Um, they have, uh, what's it, Dan Knox, who uh, goes into the crowd. Yeah.
1: They got a laser show and stuff.
0: Exactly. And with something like the bid for the 2031 World Cup to come to the United States, this is, like, the groundwork of what needs to be done. So with the U.S. Grand Prix, about a month ago, they had 140,000 uh, fans in attendance, which is the highest of any U.S. Grand Prix in history. And, you know, and like I say, they're not the same, different sports, uh, different financial capabilities, but it's the small things that will make difference. I think the rugby network has done wonders mm. for MLR of making it a free platform for if you're not in the So, for example, we can't see any Arrows games because they're on TSN, but if we want the replays, that's where we go to. And speaking of uh, being on TSN, um, you made a few appearances in uh, 2021. Um, how did that experience come about? What was it like to do live TV?
1: Uh, so how it came about actually, I, just, I tore my, uh, my labrum in my, in my hip uh, in preseason last year. And so I wasn't able to travel with the team. And I guess they were in talks for uh, broadcasting the games. And um, Mark Whitaker kind of said to me, uh, Oh, you've got like a, a bit of a personality. You know, the, you know, the, uh the players really well, you played the game, uh, you actually know what you're talking about. I don't know why he said that, but... Um, <laughs> no, uh, and he just kind of suggested that. He's like, oh, would you be interested in doing any stuff for TSN? And I, I was like, yeah, sure. Like, wouldn't turn down any any opportunity, really. And I thought it was, sounded kind of cool. But I went into it thinking I was going to do like a little color commentary and a little analysis. And the day I get there, um, They're like, oh, yeah, you're the host of the show. And I was just like, excuse me? And (laughs) and I've never done anything like this before. I think the only thing I'd ever really done was like an interview after like a training match or whatever for like in a World Cup or something like that. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, like you got to, like, you're the traffic cop. You got to welcome everybody on the show. You got to direct like the conversation. You got to send it to the field. And I had never done any of this before um but luckily we got to do a few few takes before we went live but it was wild like you got somebody talking in your ear while you're trying to have a conversation with someone while you're trying to look at the monitors and figure out what's going on and then they're like 30 seconds so you got to send it to the field it was i remember like after i finished the first show i was like riding the high for like six hours i was like oh my god I couldn't believe it but it was super fun um and slowly got like a little bit more comfortable, a little less nervous. But getting to talk about like guys you play with and a sport you love, like it's hard to beat doing that. So it was wicked.
2: Yeah, don't don't oh worry, God. I'll edit out the part where you said it took a few takes to do it, just so everyone yeah. well, the... <laughs> one perfect first one time. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The the no rehearsals, yeah. nothing at all. I'm just trying to get to yes. a job in TSN for like permanently, though. So it's like, yeah, yeah. it was yeah, one yeah, take. exactly. It was flawless.
1: I walked in, had no idea what I was
2: doing, but I killed it. It was yeah. perfect. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, T.S. Exactly. Imagine yeah. if he had more training, more time to do <laughs> yeah. it. It'd be, exactly. Yeah, exactly. He'll he'll be calling like leaf games by the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, you can. You'll do. That'll be one of your days. You'll do like the M.L.R. I final like and then the Leaf Stanley Cup. Yeah, on the same day next perfect. year. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, leaf, leaf Stanley Cup final. God, are we? Uh, what are you drinking? crying out <laughs> they've won 14 of the last 16 games too they're good they're good
1: this is this is our year guys
2: yes see yeah, exactly see jamie knows that's why we get jamie to do the hockey and rugby and you just do rugby stuff sometimes i, 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 I just do
0: pessimism yeah i
2: yeah
0: this is jamie it. jamie's born in scotland raised in england and i've got wealth pessimism coursing <laughs> through my veins
1: I, I'm gonna need some help with some good one-liners though for uh, calling these TSN g- uh, games. So if you guys have any suggestions, let me know. Uh well,
0: we'll send them over as long as the check's in the post.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
1: now, <laughs> when I, I get say, one, you'll get one.
2: Yeah, exactly. Right. As long as we can still use it too, and it doesn't look like doesn't look like too much copyright and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you can't have the copyright infringement happening, right? All right. Um, so I, I guess we'll get you to kind of put on a little bit of that like tsn analyst slash host hat here for a minute and uh what do you make of the arrows off season so far going into next year and like what uh what do you kind of expect from the the team next year obviously a little bit of peter smith now the head coach so a little bit of a coaching change there um the ben lesage trade some people are kind of calling it one of the biggest trades in mlr's history so far acquiring we Kyle We're Bailey. Cool that. <laughs> yeah, we called it that. Yeah, exactly. Stu. Um so acquiring Kyle Bailey, a couple other new faces from overseas too. Um so just like in generally what what do you what do you kind of make of uh the arrows off season so far and uh what do you think like the expectations are gonna be for uh, for this team next year?
1: I think the first thing to say is it's it's kind of cool to be like saying stuff like that. Like Blockbuster trades, like that's what we're talking about, getting into that North American market, like being able to trade guys and and have that excitement about an off season and who's a free agent, all, all that kind of stuff. So first of all, that's really, really cool. Um, Second, the Arrows are always strategic in how they uh, announce their players. They do it in, like, groups of – they might have been signed for a while, but they don't announce it until they've got, like, a group of three, and then they're doing uh, specific announcements throughout the offseason just to keep the fans engaged and stuff. But looking at some of the moves that have happened, I think Bailey coming to Toronto is wicked. Um, Last year, the Arrows struggled a little bit with their their culture. Um, Probably – uh also to do with being on the road for so long and being yeah. in such a small space with the same guys for so long. So I think he's gonna be vital uh in kind of not so much turning around the culture, but uh improving and, and increasing it. Uh he's he's a great guy. He's a he's a player's player. Um he gets the game. He'll he'll be a vital line out option as long as he stays healthy. I think that's a, a huge acquisition for the arrows. Um, but uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I think losing Ben, uh, is a massive blow. Again, uh, a leader for Canada, a leader for the arrows, a uh, spectacular player with a huge career in front of him. Uh, I think that's going to be a, a tough uh, pill to swallow for them, but at the same time, there, there, there's been a few new signings. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, don't remember his name off, uh, off, uh, my hand here, but, uh, that center that they signed, um,
2: uh, Weta to Tf- uh, Funga.
1: Yeah, from and I, th- I think it's kind of cool not not like uh, having access to see the the games that these guys have played before. And it's a bit of an excitement factor to see what you're going to get on the first day. Um, and signing a couple props, and uh, I, th- I think they really put themselves in a good position. It's just kind of how the team really comes together in the off season um or sorry preseason to really fill all those spots and and see how they start playing together um I love the move of, of Pete Smith uh being coach I think uh being head coach uh, I think he's worked hard for the opportunity and I think it's kind of his 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 time to take over and and see what he can do with the the players that he's got so that's pretty exciting as well
2: You kind of mentioned, um, I guess, um, the culture of the team last year. And like, I guess like we haven't had a player on the podcast since the season ended. And like, I guess my question is just kind of like, how difficult was that year for the players? I know that, you know, you, you were injured through the duration of the season. So you weren't down in Atlanta. I would imagine that probably is even harder on you being that far away from the team. Um, but it was like, just, I guess from that I like because I guess like in, in a normal situation, if you're injured, you're still like around the team on like certain o- occasions and can like go to the games or uh, hang out with the guys on the team after or something. Um, but I guess like how difficult like for, to to try to explain as someone on the team like because it's like not being on the team. I I I don't really know how to like comprehend how difficult or how challenging last year would have been. Um, so it's like what what was kind of that experience like for for the arrows and for yourself kind of being stuck on, I guess, the other side of the border with, I know, a few of maybe other injured players and other staff members that didn't make the trip down.
1: Yeah, honestly, like you said, it just sucks. Um, like you, you go through preseason with these guys, you, you be missing out on something that you love to do and uh, kind of going into last season, I knew it could potentially be my, one of my last few seasons, uh, and so that, that really just sucked in general. Um, luckily I had some other things to focus on back here, like, uh, some work and stuff like that to kind of keep me, uh, at least somewhat occupied. Um, but just like, I was just trying to keep in touch with the guys, um, see what's going on with the day to day is like, how's it, how's everybody feeling? I feel that maybe helped my uh, my journalistic skills a little bit, kind of diving in, getting some of the goss here and there and. <laughs> getting the guys to spill the tea on what the weeks have been like but no I was just always checking in seeing what the game plan was for for each week and how everybody's feeling and and all that kind of thing but from the actual players perspective it can be really tough like you think like oh these guys are doing what they love to do but when you're away for that long you're missing like the nice things that you're used to just being around your family or, or just being able to step away you're almost in that environment for well you are in that environment for 24 hours a day for whatever it was 118 days or something like that and that can be tough it's mentally draining you're switched on all the time you're worried about except for off days you're worried about when your next meeting is like what what time breakfast at what time's dinner at what you're going to do for all those um and then especially if you're a guy that's not like a mainstay in the 15 uh, and you're dealing with the frustrations and not getting selected. Uh, it's so important to not bring that into the team environment. You got to kind of deal with it, Uh, not so much privately, but you got to kind of deal with those emotions, uh, those negative emotions about not getting picked or not think, not getting as much game time as you think you deserve. Uh, And so that can really add up mentally um, without like an outlet to, like I said, step away from the game. It can be super tough. Uh, So I think they did a really good job for, for how long they were away uh, to kind of keep it together.
2: I guess looking at part of it too, is like the way the arrows have to start the next season. It's another massive road trip, essentially, right? You get the, <laughs> yeah. the one, the one game against LA and Langford, which is probably going to feel a lot more like a home game than say, playing in like Vegas or Atlanta or something would. Um, but like yeah. how, I guess like w- what was kind of like the reaction like did, that you had when you're like seeing the schedule and you're being like, Oh sweet, like seven more road games before we're back home.
1: I, I think it's uh, so much different than mm-hmm. the whole Atlanta thing in terms of uh, Atlanta. There's no light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. uh, besides like finishing the season. Whereas I remember our first season in the league that we, you're doing, you're basically setting goals for chunks of games. Like, okay here's our first two opponents what are we trying to achieve with those first two games uh, and then you try to roll that in the next two and then by the time that's done you're at four and then you're at six and then you know one or two more games and then you're playing back at home and if we can come out with a, a, a positive record out of that we're into a, a homestand where teams are traveling up to us and we're at home for several weeks in a row And and you're really just building up and trying to gain some momentum so uh, it's more like you're actually able to set the kind of micro goals into a bigger goal and basically chunk it out, which is, which is easier. So I think having that game in Langford, like you said, that'll be pretty important because you'll be able to play a few games, reassess everything, reset your goals, almost get like a home game. Like you said, I think they will do a phenomenal job of getting some people out to that and supporting the arrows and, and then turning that into a homestand for whatever it is, there are uh, games remaining for the season.
0: Well, that's the thing is that, um, so Toronto, by the time they play Atlanta again in April, I knock wood because obviously COVID is still a thing. Yeah. Um, it'll have been over 1,000 days since Toronto last played in Toronto. As one of the few players that has the experience of playing in front of live crowds in Toronto, what was that experience like both at uh, either Alumni Field or Lamport Stadium? That seems like a
1: whole like, different lifetime to even think about that. It's weird. <laughs> um, thinking about how good we had it before. Um, no, but uh, playing at home, I remember what we won like seven games in a row um that first year or something like that i think we lost the was it the first one at home and then we went on a crazy run where we won everything yeah um yeah it was you can't beat that and my favorite memories are playing at lamport i think that that setting like your downtown toronto the weather's getting better um you're getting good crowds it's like one of those stadiums that feels Ah, uh, bigger than it is, uh, especially when you start packing it out and you got the beer gardens going. It's just fun. You got all your friends watching. I th- I think, uh, arrows are lucky that they have got so many ho- hometown kids, um, because it gets people out and they're they're playing for their families and in, in front of their families, whereas opposed to uh, a lot of these other U.S. teams and stuff, and like maybe not a lot of those guys are actually from that city. So I think that's an advantage for us, especially when we play at home. Right, so we're going to talk about um,
0: your decision to call time on your rugby career. Now, obviously, it for um, different players, as different circumstances. One of the worst things is when uh, injury just makes the decision for you, especially for like a lot of young guys. Um, you mentioned before that you had um, injured your hip in pre-season. Was that the specific moment or was there a, like a culmination of different things that made you come to that decision?
1: Yeah, it was uh, a combination of a few things. So that was definitely uh, a big part of it. Um, but kind of the icing on the cake was Canada not qualifying for the World Cup. Um, so basically my situation was I tore my labrum. Uh, I would have needed surgery um the recovery is about like six to eight months to get back into playing games um and so my plan was to to get surgery do all my rehab my recovery uh roll that into hopefully another mlr season um and then into a a world cup campaign um but kind of when canada didn't qualify for that world cup uh for me to justify doing about eight months of, of rehab just to play, uh, one MLR season, maybe if I was good enough, cause the surgery that I would have had to get, it's not like it just fixes it. It still could be uh, a big issue. Um, and then five years down the road, I'm going to need a hip replacement anyway. So am I going to deal with all that for, for one more, maybe MLR season? Um, and so just kind of weighing up all those factors and uh, my personal life and then having some opportunities outside of rugby. Uh, it was tough to, to call it, um, but I just thought it was kind of, kind of time. It's a fair decision to make. Um, so
0: looking back um, to 2020, um, first game of the truncated season against, um, against the Texan teams. So first up was um, Austin and then Houston in Vegas. Um, which is what turned out to be your final pro game for the Arrows. Um, How do you view that match, and has your perspective on it changed since you retired?
1: Not really. Uh, Those are actually like pretty vivid memories because that season and the start we had to it and the team we had, I don't think anybody would have really been able to beat us um, down the road. And I think we were such a... uh, a championship contender that like, I look back on it so fondly and and the team was, was gelling so well together and we were just going out there and having fun and playing rugby. Um, so I look back at that and just think like, I guess it does kind of make me really miss it and, and make me a little bit sad that, 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 w- were, that was my last game against Houston. Um, but, yeah, I just wish we could have had that whole season. It would have been, I think, phenomenal for, for the Arrows in general. And if we got to play at home rolling, like, with the team that we had there, it would have been wicked to, to grow the game and, and, and the brand for the Arrows too.
2: So looking back at the career as a whole, what do you think the best game that you played was?
1: Uh, I think it has to be that Italy game. Um, I remember we had such a fun strategy, like Kieran Crowley, the coach at the time. Um, we were a little bit undersized in the forwards, uh, like more so it's at set piece, like in the scrum and stuff. So we had a specific pattern that we would run. And as a scrum half, it was so much fun because we go out to the far channel. Uh, so we'd attack wide with the backs. We do one, one second scrum. So ball in and ball out right away. Uh, go far channel, bring it back one phase, bring it back to the sideline, then we go all the way back to the other uh, other sideline and kind of repeat that. And it was just so fun like running around, slinging the ball and actually playing and stuff. Um, and yeah, that that game just stands out for, for how fun it was and playing in front of an insane crowd and just kind of like the combination of everything, the crowd, the World Cup, um, playing for your country and and just playing some fun running rugby. That was probably the one that stands out the most for me. And this,
2: I guess kind of maybe a, like one last thing as we're kind of starting to wind down a little bit here. Is like, do you have any like message or anything to like the fans or the people that kind of supported you throughout your career now, now that uh you are kind of like looking back on it and kind of reflecting on the the entire rugby journey here?
1: Yeah, actually, um, before I officially announced my retirement, I um, made a point of calling a lot of the coaches uh, and people that had an impact on my career. And that was so rewarding, just getting to spend 10, 20 minutes on the phone with them, um, just letting them know I was actually retiring and uh, just thanking them. Because I feel like so many people, uh, especially in like Ontario and Canadian rugby, they, they don't get thanked enough um, for a sport that uh isn't as big as a lot of the other ones um so it was it was pretty emotional but uh my biggest message is yeah thank you and thank you for doing ty- uh like jobs that you won't always get thanked for and the amount of time uh that so many people put in is absolutely phenomenal uh and it's it's hard you'll never be able to like i, I hope i can give back half as much as some of the people that, that uh, had an impact on my career um and I made a point like the Balmy Beach just reached out to me to do some of their academy stuff and just giving back in, in any kind of sense that I can. Cause yeah, like I said, I don't think these people will ever get thanked enough for what they do for the sport.
2: So, so if you're looking at like doing like academy stuff for with like Balmy Beach, is like is coaching or like I guess coaching TV analysis, uh, analysis and stuff like just kind of like looking for ways that uh you can stay involved in the game or are you thinking that yeah. there's to be like, lengthy like career opportunities and options like that too.
1: I haven't really thought about them as career uh, like opportunities. I think if um, I'm passionate enough about something, then like maybe career opportunities would come from it. Um, when I'd taken some time away from the sport, I actually uh, did a bit of coaching with U of T and that was really fun. And I think they'd won their first game in like 10 years or something that year and being a part of that something like that is so cool. Um, but yeah, like it's, that's the one thing I don't think I, I know when the arrows step on the field and I watch their first game at home, yeah. I'm going to be really upset about it. But the fact that I can stay connected to the game um, through, like you said, TSN or doing any commentary or anything like that, and then being involved with uh, whatever kind of coaching opportunities there are, um, that's something I'll I'll always be keen to do. And like, like I said, if I, if I can give back, like, even a, a degree of what people, uh, the time and effort they gave me throughout my career, then I'll be happy about it, and i be willing to do that at any time.
0: Next season, you'll be a fan in the stands,
1: or you'll be on TSN
0: hosting uh, the games before they begin. But what are you hoping to see from both the arrows and from Canada over the next few years?
1: Arrows, I just want to see them continue to grow the brand um, and grow the, uh, the game in general. And if they can keep doing what they're doing in terms of getting more kids into the program at an earlier age and giving more kids the opportunity to play a professional sport, uh, that'll be huge. Um, for Canada, uh, I think it's a good opportunity for them to kind of look at themselves and, and figure out what they can do as a, as a program from the top down. Uh, Looking at the different pathways of how they can be better, uh, utilize whatever. I know we do have limited resources, but utilize those to the best that we can. And, And it's, I guess it's a, well, it's obviously sucks. We haven't qualified for the 2023 World Cup, but in some sense, it's a bit of a blessing with where the team is now to be like, okay, we've got 2027 on the, like, not the horizon, but in the future what are the steps we we can take to build up to that moment? And rather than you're trying to like doing the repishage and just squeaking by, and then like, you're not really planning for anything. I think it's a good opportunity for for Canada to plan so far down the road and come up with a a really good plan for that, to get us back into where we need to be to qualify for that world cup.
0: So Jamie, uh, at this point of the uh, episode, we normally say what we are on social media. So um, if you enjoyed this episode and this interview, we have plenty of other interviews on uh, previous episodes that you can find at La Rouge Rugby, both on Spotify and Anchor FM. You can find us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at La Rouge Rugby. Um, Jamie, if people want to see what you're doing in the next steps of your career following rugby, where can they find you?
1: Ah, uh, you can find me at J Macerdo on uh, pretty much everything—Twitter, Instagram. It's J M A C K E R D O O. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much it. And a little bit active on social, nothing crazy, but uh, yeah.
2: Do you have a TikTok yet? So I'm trying to convince Stu to get a Larouche TikTok, and I'm hoping I can use you to be like
1: the help, <laughs> oh, help me out in this argument here i think i'm a little bit too old for tiktok i i have <laughs> tiktok and i love watching them it's so addicting uh ben lesage is the is the resident tiktok master um that i know but no i i've never really made any but maybe i should get onto that
0: <laughs> all right doing so. you the next tiktok dance craze started by jamie yeah exactly <laughs> derek if people want to find you on social media where can they find you
2: Us uh, apper at Persept the jet that's usual like like jamie it's the same handle across everything keep it simple
0: and exactly. you can find me on twitter and instagram at hardman spelled h number four r d m a n well jamie it's been a pleasure talking to you tonight and thank you all for joining us for 100 episodes we look forward to you joining us next time